Hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning in and listening, as always, especially during these trying pandemic times. My guest on the pod today is someone I've been looking forward to talking about a movie with for quite some time. He's my friend and sometimes colleague, Paul Heaney, who's a UK broadcasting distributor and television executive who I had the good fortune to meet some years ago at one of our various TV conferences and markets that we attend all over the world. And he's just one of those people you immediately look forward to seeing every time you run into him. He's got a wonderful sense of humor. He has an encyclopedic knowledge of British history and television and movie references. And he is always kind enough to indulge my annoying Anglophilia. So when Paul and I finally connected and brought him here onto the podcast, we of course had to discuss the seminal, influential, dynamic, incredible Get Carter, starring Michael Caine. Here's my conversation with Paul about Get Carter. Okay, so Paul, I've wanted to have you on for quite a while because you're obviously a big film fan. You're a big tele- you're a big television fan. You you are a pop culture fan and you are UK born and bred and you have a comedic sensibility of the highest magnitude. You have really good taste in general. You are here because we want to talk about Get Carter. One day, a professional killer went home to visit his family and found his brother murdered. Now, who killed him? I don't know nothing. Listen, the only reason I came back to this crap house was to find out who did it. And I'm not leaving till I do. Michael Caine is Carter. Get Carter before Carter gets you. I want you to first set the stage a little bit for when you first encountered this movie and what your experience of it was. And particularly since we're talking about UK cinema and anything British in general, how does the class structure come into this film and how it was received and how you received it and how Michael Caine himself broke molds if there were any in the British film industry? Wow, there's a lot of questions in there. No, I think, uh, <laughs> thanks for that. And no, I'll see you in an hour. I, <laughs> I encountered it, actually, yeah, when I was really young. I'm, I'm quite a lot older than you, Jason, so um, thanks for not mentioning that, but so far. Uh, but you can edit that in. So, um, no, I encountered it when I was quite young, and uh, I thought, what's this sort of, hang on, this is Michael Caine as a proper baddie. How did this happen? And so I was used to watching, you know, one of my all-time favorites, Zulu, and... Uh, other Michael Caine films, and I thought, wow, this isn't someone to recognize. And hang on, this is all really dark and dingy and depressing. And then uh, I watched it, I think, and then years later, then it got picked up by the sort of the zeitgeist and the the lad culture. And there's some films, I think, that sort of, um, uh, I think would have loved to say that was an influence, like maybe Lockstock. A few nights ago, Rory's Roger Ryan rusted. So he's gone down the battle cruiser to watch the end of a football game. No one's watching the custard, so he switches the channel over. A fat geezer's north opens, and he wanders up and turns the lizer over. Now fuck off and watch it somewhere else. Rory knows Claret is imminent, 
but he doesn't want to miss the end of the game. So calm as a coma, picks up a fire extinguisher, walks straight past the jam rolls were ready for action, and plonks it outside the entrance. He then orders an Aristotle of the most ping-pong tiddly in the nuclear sub and switches back to his footer. That's fucking it, says the geezer. That's fucking what, says Rory, and he gobs out a mouthful of booze covering fatty. He flicks a flaming match into his bird's nest and the geezer's lit up like a leaking gas pipe. Rory, unfazed, turns back to his game. His team's won too. And even there's actually, um, I disappeared down some rabbit holes, so forgive me for this. No, that's what we're about. Well, some of your contributors are just amazing and I just thought, oh my God, when it comes to my time, I'm just going to be a, a, a colossal disappointment. So I may try and distract your uh, loyal uh, listeners with, with irrelevant, stupid jokes and impersonations, if they don't mind. But no, right. um, just bounce some rabbit holes. And there's a, there's a magazine called Viz, V-I-Z, which is actually a Tyneside um, adult comic, which came out in the 80s. Um, and it's still going. It's a real cult amongst... Do you know about Viz? I used to work with an editor who uh, was from the UK, and he used to bring in the Profanosaurus. Yes. And we would, we would not work. We would spend hours crying with laughter over the various just horrible, terrible, just completely politically incorrect terminology that was used. And that's, he turned me on to Viz. So that's right. And I, I wasn't on from the very beginning, but there's a character in it and it's just, a, it's, it's comic strips, but like the ones I grew up with, it was inspired by kids' ones, but in an, now these, these are all adult strips. And there's one called Big Vern, basically. Big Vern is a gangster, a London gangster, who at the end of every single um, strip, at the end of every single story every week or whenever it came out, with, I think it was every fortnight, he'd always blow his own head off with a, with a shotgun. <laughs> and he's like, if you're not going to, I'm going to take you down. If not, I'm taking myself down. And basically, he would blow his own head off because he was like, right, I, I'm, not, I'm not letting you scumbags take me. And so there was a little bit of that. I was just thinking around this and, and reading up and looking at it again. I'm thinking, this is actually, I would say, if you spoke to the Newcastle-based guys at Viz, um, where uh, Get Carter is, is based, they would say, yeah, they might have had that in their, in their, um, in their canon of sort of influences because actually um, Newcastle's really proud of it. Tyneside, because it's not just Newcastle, it's Gateshead as well, his house where he lives in the film is in Gateshead, which is a couple of miles away. So that area is really quite proud of it. And uh, though they've knocked down quite a few things and have changed things, there's a lot of concrete and glass where there was terrace bricks and things like that from the film. So where did, where did you grow up? I grew up in North London. So I'm, uh, yeah, so I'm, uh, I, through my Irish parents, uh, all the immigrants lived in different parts of London. So where I grew up in a place called the Holloway Road, uh, the Holloway Road was sort of all Irish. And until the age of 18, I didn't actually meet anyone English. Uh, they're either Italians <clears throat> who went, went to my Catholic um, school run by Christian Brothers, um, same school as Peter Sellers went to, and he impersonated those dreadful Jesuits. On, uh, but that's another story, isn't it? Should we not disappear that hard down that hole? So yeah, so North London. Whereas North London accent is very, you miss out, you miss off the G at the end of your your words, like doing. You hear Michael Caine's accent, which is slightly different. It's South London. It's only a few miles south. It's Elephant and Castle which is just south of the river. And of course, Elephant and Castle, he, he talks about Elephant and Castle all the time. Because I didn't know there was a drama school anywhere. I'd never heard of that. And, so, and it's very difficult to explain that to people. For if you come from that, I mean, we're talking about what, 
60 years ago, you know, at the Elephant and Castle, just down there. When I became an actor, it, I, I became an actor quite accidentally, really, because I was, I was a soldier in, in national service. And when I came out, I was working in a factory with an old man. And, and he said to me, you're not going to do this all your life, are you? I said, no. He said, what do you want to do with your life? And I said, well, I, I want to become an actor. He said, I said, but I, I, I don't really quite know how to go about it. Oh, he said, I can tell you. I said, really? Is this this old guy? Old company guy? I said, yeah. He said, my daughter's a semi-professional singer. He said, and if you go to Solosi's uh, 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 newspaper agents uh, opposite the Leicester Square tube station in Charing Cross Road, they have a paper in there called The Stage. And if you look in the back pages, they advertise for actors. And I said, really? He said, yeah. And on the Saturday when I wasn't working, I went and it said, stage manager in small parts, Horsham Rep. And I went and I got the job. And that's how I started. I mean, I was making the tea and all that uh, and running around after everybody. But I, you know, and I was, I didn't get very much money. I was always hungry. But I would always look, I was always happy when there were parts where there was meals, you know. <laughs> but I'd order double and I'd, eat, I'd have my lot, you know. Um, no one, uh, not many people really know, not many people know that. It's named after uh, one of Henry VIII's wives, Catherine of Aragon, who was called the Infanta of Castile when she was being talked about as a potential wife of Henry VIII. And amongst uneducated people in London, that part of London especially, the Infanta of Castile. Uh, became Elephant and Castle. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. I love it. <laughs> yeah, so um, I'm sorry, I've completely butchered that really good London story, but um, for the benefit of time. Okay, sorry. so 20 miles apart, two completely different accents. This is oh, the thing five, that I love. Five, six miles apart? Five, six miles apart. And that's south, and then there's a, there's a sort of east. I've got a colleague uh, who's got a very much Kent east, and you know him, and he's much more whiny, a bit like that. Uh, sorry, Jimmy. <laughs> uh, and... Uh, and he is sort of, he's more south uh, east. And then you've got, um, yeah, you've got different accents. God, I've just butchered that um, Dartford accent as well. So <laughs> that probably won't make the edit. Our listeners fine. in Dartford will be very upset with you. But yeah, but Kane's got um, a very much uh, London accent. So, um, okay. So Michael Kane uh, in his career, and I think Zulu was maybe his first film appearance, uh, maybe one of his first few which famously he was cast as an upper-class posh officer. What's the date of your commission? Now, don't tell me. I suppose you have seniority. 1872, May. Only because he says the producer was not British, and had the producer been British, he never would have cast Michael Caine as an upper-class officer. And also, um, that role had just gone. Um, he was actually uh, supposed to go for that role, and he didn't get the call. I mean, these days, he missed the call. Imagine he that. missed the phone call. Days. Hang on, yeah, you just have to check your wristwatch, and you make sure you get the, everything. Get your, he missed the phone call. By the time he turned up, they said, oh, sorry, it's gone. And as he turned to leave, they said, well, you don't look like a Cockney. And in those days, as he said, Cockney actors got Cockney parts. And as mm -hmm. he always says, he's a Cockney who happens to be an actor. Mm -hmm. So... Um, as he was walking away, they said, well, we do have a, a position of a, of a lieutenant, as we call it, a lieutenant over there across the pond. So uh, he did that rather well. I mean, Zulu's fantastic film. Uh, he did that posh uh, officer, I think, really well. You know, he was swishing away with his, his little brush and, uh, you know, going doing his hunting. So, yeah, so he seems to have been uh, 
the casting for Get Carter, I can't imagine any other actor apart from Sir Michael Caine uh, being in that role. All right, admittedly, in the film and in the book, you're supposed to come from that town. So he doesn't have a hint of a Newcastle accent. But then if you left at a young age, you wouldn't do. And they are very, very two most strikingly different accents. Well, actually, the book is set in a different town. That's right. The director set it in Newcastle. He did national service. Oh, look, I'm really showing off now. Pretend I really know the subject really well. But he That's went up do. and down the coast in national service. And he, uh, he uh, noticed that Newcastle was extreme poverty where, you know, there are maybe other parts of Britain, like London, that were still going through this sort of, hey, smashing Austin Powers, miniskirts, Carnaby Street, you know, Union Jacks, and everyone's great and cool and groovy. Then you go up north and it's, bedpans and smoke and sky and uh, gray skies and uh, and coal mining and it's a different story so I think Hodges wanted to maybe portray that and he certainly hit the nail on the head and it's the you know it's the sort of dark heart of the north. I had to go all the way up the east coast this is in the 50 early 50s like Hull, Grimsby, lower stuff all the way up to North Shields and so on I see poverty the likes of which I couldn't believe so when I came to make the film, I remembered all of these places. And you looked at this city and you knew that this was a place that Jack Carter could possibly have come from. Uh, it justified in part, only in part, Jack's uh, character. I think that incredible shot of, and there's amazing photos of Ted Lewis, the author of the novel on which Get Carter is based, and then of course Michael Caine in the film itself. That incredible shot looking down the road with the apartment flats, which in the far distant background, you have the smokestacks. I don't know if that's in Newcastle proper. Yes, I think it is. Uh, yeah, I think it is. Um, and that's all gone. Everything, the background and everything there. So in a way, it was a snapshot of time that will never come back. So uh, so Newcastle um, residents are sort of lucky in a way. There's a sort of museum piece to their city that will never be able to. And it's so evocative just looking at it again. I keep thinking, actually, that's the other thing. I always thought the film was in black and white. Because as a kid, <laughs> when I watched it, it feels like it is. That's amazing. And because it, um, it feels like it's in black and white, doesn't it? Because it's so gritty, you know, and there's so many, gray, it's so much gray. Apart from maybe a couple of, how much color is there in a the film? You know, I can think of a car that's in it that maybe isn't gray or black. Like the blue, the blue uh, Range Rover or whatever that, that's yes, following that's him right. in and the beginning. And the, uh, the Sunbeam Alpine in there as well. Yeah. I'm a bit of a carb thing. But anyway. Well, although the director and the cinematographer wanted it to feel documentary-like, which I think placing the film in kind of context in the UK at the time, so it comes out in 1971. And I think it's interesting that John Osborne has a very good role in this movie too. See what it's like these days, Jack? You can't get the material. Yes, I can see your problem, Mr. Kinnear. Sit down, Jack. Thank you. I could weep, I really could. Sometimes I think I'll retire and just piss off to the Bahamas and let somebody else employ them. Glenda, get Jack a drink. Is that what is kind of happening in England at the time in 1971, where was there always this kind of fascination with the East End gangster and the hard man and this slice of English life? Or did Ted Lewis's books, this movie, as you say, you talked about sort of lad culture embracing this. That's really more of a 90s thing, right? Like when that yeah. sort of became very fashionable again. Yeah. And when you think now, when you look at Guy Ritchie, 
I mean, I like some of those movies, but when you look at a movie like this and you read these Ted Lewis books, it's like, okay, someone just gave him the blueprint to do this really, really well that he didn't really come up with. But leaving that aside, did the movie represent like a shift in any way, like to put these lives on display and not kind of in a, it's not condescending. I think one of the things that the book does really well and that the movie does really well, it Mm. doesn't look down or talk down to these characters who have chosen this life. And it also doesn't glorify them other than I guess, let's say it glorifies it a little bit, but you know, there's a price to be paid. Certainly the ultimate price, not to spoil 1971's get Carter, but Carter himself pays the ultimate price at the end. It's not a life of glamor. And indeed all the Ted Lewis books end horribly for these characters. So he's not looking at it and saying like, Oh, wow. No, I think, uh, and uh, and Kane says, you know, in those days, heroes um, got killed off, you know, or characters, main characters got killed off. But you did ask that about uh, the class system. And actually, um, you're right, actually, there's a certain thing. And there's another book I read uh, a couple of years ago, very famous book. Have I got his, uh, his first name? Is it John Pearson's The Profession of Violence mm. about the Cray Brothers? Oh, yeah. Uh, and that's an amazing book about their sort of the rise and fall. Yes. And they sort of transcended class because all yeah. of a sudden they're being photographed by David Bailey with Twiggy. and Oh, no, sorry, I shouldn't say that. It's probably not with Twiggy. Let me get my facts right. But with, um, with, Holly, with, uh, with actors, you know, Terrence Stamp, et cetera. So I suppose, yeah, to answer your question, that was the beginning of uh, a sort of much more merging of class culture. But it wasn't far before that that the famous John Cleese sketch with Ronnie Barker, Ronnie Corbett, where they have three characters. I look down on him because I am upper class. I look up to him because he is upper class. But I look down on him because he is lower class. (laughs) I am middle class. (laughs) I know my place. Upper, middle, lower class. I look down on him and I look up to him. And so that, that actually, it's still, it was still very much going. And in the north of England, I think people are much more, uh, much more sort of, uh, what's the word, maybe slightly less respectful than the south. The south is, was where you would get the class system, very much because of public schools and because of London. Whereas the north, uh, it's much more classless, I think, mm. and always has been. And that's why people much, feel much more relaxed. That's why maybe it's friendlier up there as well. There isn't that sort of class system, you know, and people always say in London, you go on the tube, the bus, but, it's, you know, in the south of England, southeast, it's a bit less friendly. And maybe as soon as you open your mouth, people know where you're from and what school you went to, probably. Mm-hmm. You know, I encountered that, you know, and that's why I had to change my voice into this mellifluous example that you've got now. Oh, yes. <laughs> so, no, they, um, what do they call it in the UK when you have to change your voice for broadcast standard? What's the, there's a term for the type of... Well, elocution, no, not elocution. No, no, there was a term oh, for yeah. it. Oh, there, there used to be. There used to be uh, what, like con- um, continental elocution oh, or something, or pronunciation. No, wasn't it? No, yes, or, right. And oh, Michael Caine yeah. famously kind of didn't do that as an actor. So yeah, I think um, I think villains transcended it, and I think yeah, he's up there in Newcastle in his mohair three-piece suit, which, by the way, he only turns up in Newcastle with a briefcase. And I was thinking, <laughs> God, these days, you know, I need some more clothes. I mean, you know, in those days, I suppose people did wear things the next day. We're, we're, we're sort of different culture, aren't we? But I thought, ooh, that shirt, he's going to have to change that now, especially because he's seen so many confrontations. But he also handles himself 
with a certain upper classness in terms of his dress and how he orders his drinks and the north south thing. Me, that felt like a. There's always a certain resentment from the north. You southerners coming up here t- trying to tell us what to do. You and, and I, I encountered that going to Manchester years ago for work, and it was it was there was a certain there was a certain chippiness, mm. and I loved it because I like going up there because all of a sudden no one judged me when you open your mouth or you say where you're from or anything like that. Whereas uh, they still see you as a as a posh southern softy, and anyone <laughs> can tell I'm certainly not that. They, um, <laughs> But they, they, that's yeah, humor. So, that's humor, listeners, right there. Self-deprecating humor. Oh, sorry. Yeah, tick. Sorry, that's that's about as good as it gets. With Kane, you're right. He's got a sort of snootiness, hasn't he? When he walks in, goes across the road from the from the train station yeah. into, into the Great pub, scene. which is still there. That pub is still there. That's amazing. Said, oh yeah, from Newcastle. He said, "Oh yeah." I mean, God knows what it looks like in there. And they're all extras, aren't they? As well. That's the amazing thing. They're extras, and you can tell they're extras. And he Hodges liked to use that, didn't he, to get that. And I think Kane wanted a really realistic feel, not just in the in those scenes, but also in the fight scenes. He was in the army, so he's probably got a bit of that. He keeps his sort of he, he holds holds himself really well when he walks up in there because also he's paranoid as hell. His brother has died in mysterious circumstances. He's looking around as soon as he steps out of that train, thinking, "Right, there's someone around here knows about this." And also for a Londoner, for an arrogant Londoner, and he's a cocky, arrogant Londoner because he's a He's a bit of a gangster. He will think, bloody hell, Newcastle, it's nothing. And they know he thinks that way. So they know he's a cocky southerner. And you can tell the attitude towards him is slightly chippy. And they deserve to be like that because he's being a bit arrogant towards them, isn't he? Right. You know, he's, in every, he's in every scene, more or less. And he is being a bit sort of, all right, I'll tell you how it's going to be. You know, right. I mean, the whole thing, you know, we can go on to other stuff, but the whole way he talks to people. Um, well, also, Mike Hodges, you know, cast Alan Armstrong as the bartender in that scene and, you know, yeah. talk about an amazing career that kind of launched from there. And the reason yeah. he cast him was because he wanted local actors, local yeah. people to be appropriate in that. And that scene in the bar, there's two great shots where, first of all, when Michael Caine walks in and just the way it's framed, he's in that suit and it's not so much a working man's bar because there's old couples. It's kind of that pub culture where you have three or four different generations kind of hanging out there. But the documentary-like approach, there's a few great shots of characters we then never see again, but they're clocking Carter, who this guy is, what's he doing here. They know he doesn't fit in already, and either they know who he is or they don't. And the way they film that is brilliant. And then there's a great shot where after Kane orders his, his Guinness, and just like in the book, such a great detail, which I want you to explain to me. He says, Find a bit of. In a thin glass. Snaps his fingers. In a thin glass. What's oh, the yeah. difference between a thin oh. glass? Because a tall glass, yeah, because that's what we like to drink uh, out of, which was more sort of a younger, trendier glass, which is the sort of classic pint glass and listeners will love this because I'm describing it with my hands. It goes up with a little right, like the Guinness, the Guinness pint glass. We're all familiar with the classic pint glass with the little, little so. it's got a swell little, at the top. It's got a little thing at the top. Just before the top, it's got a little um, bulge. Yeah. Whereas the, one, the other one is the jug with the sort of windows around the side and the big old jug, which is your old man's one, which is your old man's sort of, you know, smoking a sort of, well, everyone was smoking in the film, aren't they? So, you know, you're smoking your roll up in the corner with your, with your, with your jug. Those ones, because you can hold those ones when you're standing outside, uh, you know, with your, with your slash, with your legs akimbo. Yeah, with your legs akimbo, talking to your mates, 
or at the bar, it's much easier to sort of hold that. Whereas the jug is sort of, you've got to rest it this. down and it's heavier. And so all that. So yeah, um, I think, yeah, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. What was he saying? Tall glass. No, no, thin, thin, in a thin, thin glass, in a thin glass. Yeah. Yeah. uh, With an attitude, which is such a great detail. And that's in the book. That's in Ted Lewis's book. And that's the, that's such a great example of the kind of minute detail that really makes the Ted Lewis book so incredible. And that I think Mike Hodges captured so well in the movie is that element, which, you know, in an American film, there would then be someone that would explain that. Why does he want a thin glass? Oh, you know, and then some yeah. some ancillary character would give us the explanation you just gave. But I love that they just let it play that way. And then yeah. there's the shot where after he does that, an older gentleman at the bar who's who actually now that you mention it, he is drinking out of that that glass with the handle and the little windows on it. And he kind of looks askance at Carter and Carter and Kane just does this visual double take and freezes the guy and the guy immediately goes back to his own business. It's, you know, he yeah, knows not to trifle. Because he's standing there and he's sort of owning the bar, but um, yeah. and you know, and you know, if John Osborne walked in there, he would have his own chair and his own seats. All right, right sir, you can sit in the corner. Because I thought that was a curious bit of casting. And sorry, you asked that earlier on. I thought that was a curious one, and I've heard it's sort of Osborne wanted it to be. Um, he wanted to get away from the look back in anger, sort of pigeonhole that he got himself in. Because I don't know that that one was a curious casting, and I'm not sure if it does necessarily work or not but you know you could have just plopped anyone with a posh voice in there and it probably would have done the job we didn't need it we needed to have someone cd didn't we someone cd someone low life and someone a little bit um effete or someone well, like i think that. a little loose which is how he reads loosh. in the part you yeah, know in america yeah. we don't i don't know john osborne as i don't think of him as an actor at all i, I sort of you know right. you, you think of him as a playwright and you know those famous works and you know him as being part of kind of uh, what did they call it? The kitchen sink movement at the time of kind of like elevating the everyday into lofty art. But, and and actually when I watched the movie, I had no idea who that was in the role. I just thought, oh, it's a great little spot of casting there because I thought he exuded a dangerous looseness. And yes. then kind of come to find out reading about John Osborne's just messy, complicated, five marriage, disastrous personal life. Uh, it makes a lot of sense why he would be cast there because I think even at this point in 1971, he'd probably already been married three or four times and was known as a character of, you know, questionable morals and um, was sort of probably a bit of stunt casting at the time, maybe. But we were talking about Kane and uh, and when he's when he's arrives and that and that whole sort of element of um, he's coming to this area of yeah of realism of northern realism away yes. from away from that and i think yeah hodges and i was going to ask you do you think and i i'm out of my depth here but paul greengrass always likes to use mm. loads of extras and i'm wondering whether there's something there as well i'm out of my depth a little bit but the way that real real like in in uh, bloody sunday where he uses real soldiers where they add something in oh 100 um, even without even trying and in the betting shop scene as well um you've got a guy there who is most probably he doesn't yeah. doesn't He's got no teeth. He looks very much like an extra or a normal person rather than an extra. So, yeah. And right. He's, uh, anyway. Yeah. I think Paul Greengrass is a great um, connective director to what Mike Hodges did in this movie. In fact, in our our episode about The Big Lebowski, my guest, Michael Chernus, was in Captain Phillips, the Paul Greengrass oh. film about the Somali pirates. And to your point, 
he said that the style that Greengrass worked in was very similar to sounds like what Mike Hodges was into here, because I think Hodges came out of a documentary background at this point in his career. He hadn't yet made the atrocity of Flash Gordon, so he's he's still somewhat artistically pure at this point. But coming out of the documentary background, and then Greengrass, you know, his approach on Captain Phillips was to actually have the actors undergo the training required to perform the jobs on a merchant marine ship, and then basically give them the scenarios with some of the beats that had to happen and just have them do it. And, 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 and Michael Chernus said it would be a little disconcerting when you're used to the normal way of filmmaking, where it's like, you know, he said at one point, like Tom Hanks sort of was like, okay, so when is it, when's my shot coming? When's my close up? When do I get to act? And that's not how he was filming it. And it feels like this movie is shot very similarly to that, where the details, I think after he leaves the pub and then when he goes to his brother's uh, apartment, the walls, the light switches, the it's, it, it's yeah. just an incredible it's so, location. It's so evocative. It's so evocative for me growing up as well, because we had uh, you know Irish household to pay the rent, pay the mortgage. We had lodgers, and uh, those light switches mm. that just stick out the baker lights, the sort of yellowing walls, the stained mattresses, the sort of you can almost smell the film, mm-hmm. can't you? You know the st- the the smell of smoke everywhere. You know that was. And bedpans, and it just that the um, you know the bed and breakfast place that he goes into, you know you can tell how unimpressed he is at it, you know, mm-hmm. and the the sort of the arrogance that he has, and the, the that attitude that the landlady has to him at the moment he comes in here, you know, with his with his high flute in southern ways. Yes, and it's called Las Vegas. It's got this. It's got the electric light sign. <laughs> I've always like, you know, I'm a big Anglophile. I think we've talked in the past all of the DVD series that I work through light switches that's a big i i realized like when i watch the classic uh, le carres the you know the smileys the uh, tinker tail the original tinker tailors like there's something about those uk light switches in that and in like rumple of the bailey which is another series i've just binged crazily for like a year and watched all of there's something about the those flats the 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 type of the way you turn on and off the lights is almost instantaneously a class signifier. Yes. And also the light wouldn't come on absolutely straight away. It's sort of pop. It wouldn't be straight away, would it? It would be a sort of, there'd be a little buzz just beforehand. And then it would come up and it would be disappointingly dim as well. Whenever I saw a hundred watt bulb, I'd get excited when I was a kid. Wow. Look at that. We could have proper lights. And it was sorry, it must be the way those the way those um what would you call that row that his brother's apartment is in? Are those would those oh, be terrace. flat terraced terrace? houses? Yeah, the terraced houses and a lot of industrial northern cities. So Newcastle was one of the industrial powerhouses because of shipbuilding and because of coal. And soon after that, that's why it's a museum piece, it's a snapshot, because soon after that, there was so-called urban regeneration or urban degeneration, where um you know, there was the uh, the loss of the coal mines and there was the big sort of um, all the, the strikes in the 80s. Um, and Newcastle did actually has, to a certain extent, regenerated um, across Gateshead and Newcastle. You've now got this hospitality industry and uh, car making, you know, as well, which came into the area. But but it's still a feel for it. And I think um, even up there now, there's still a, it's, it's never going to be uh, anything other than a fairly tough, deprived area. But that whole swathe across from, West to east, cross the Pennines up through Yorkshire is uh, of <clears throat> of industrial cities, the industrial powerhouses of the of the north. You know that 
that sort of kept you know the so-called British Empire going you know through everything so uh and that that and Tyneside where the bridge is you know it's it's much quieter now but you can see in the film the amount of of ships and cargo going underneath uh, Newcastle uh, underneath the Tyne Bridge you know it's um it was in those days it was a busy busy port you know and uh, mm-hmm. and then the final scene you know they're they're in a that's that's coal that's all about feeding the feeding industry and there's so many there's so many um allegorical sort of you know little little symbols in there aren't they and I, I kept mm. thinking am I disappearing down this too am I thinking about this too much you know not at I think, all I think it's completely intentional you know when they're having the fight and they're on a they're more or less in um when Hendry and Kane are having the fight um they're on a slag heap mm-hmm. you know it's a sl- is it a slag heap is that is that sort of typifying a slag heap of life I thought oh god you are really disappearing up your own arsehole now you tv wanker but still it might be but it might be um it might be a case of yeah, these are lowlifes. These are scumbags. Yeah, I mean, his body is dumped into the ocean with the detritus of the mining that's probably also destroying the community at the same time. Yeah, it's yeah, it's scarring the landscape. But I right. mean, the reason because it was coal mining, it was essential. And it was it built all those towns, all those communities. It was essential, and those friendly, loving, caring communities. I mean, that's what that's what you you get a little bit is despite the hardship in that region. They had real, I mean, this sounds like a cliche, but the hearts of gold. And they always say, you know, that region of England is so friendly. And I'm sure Mike Hodges got that when he was going up and down uh, during, during his military service in that area. I'm sure he found Newcastle being a friendly place because, you know, they're a tough place, but they're very friendly all the same. And also one of the things that's changed from the Ted Lewis book is when, when Carter goes to his brother's flat in the book, it's... It's much. It's neat as a pin. It's much less down market than it's portrayed in the movie, and I think that's probably a change because okay, if we're going to be set in Newcastle, who would who would his brother have been, and how would he have lived? I think they followed the realism of the choices that they made in resetting the location of the events of the novel. But in the book, his brother's apartment and his room is used to contrast the life of the brother with the with the life that Carter chose. And so the neatness, the furniture, the kind of almost military-like cleanliness of the apartment is something that Carter very touchingly walks through. And it's it's there in the book that we get the story of how the brothers once so close and that shotgun is the is the device which is used in the book and in the movie to illustrate that, the initials carved on the stock, both of their initials. And they were boys, they secreted the gun and they went and ran away to the countryside and would shoot it. And they were they were brothers and they were very, very close. But then of course, Carter chooses this life and his brother was always morally upstanding. And in the book, that's much more fleshed out and much more a profound difference. And also a little they they gl- they glance at it in the movie with one line but in the book it's it's a major story point that michael kane's character may be the father of the daughter not frank the brother and that's a whole that's a very big part of the book's kind of engine and in here i think there's just one moment where someone's angry and they and he yells it at at carter as a hurls it as an accusation and it's kind of just left there you don't really get into it and that's I'm always interested when you when you it's very rare that you have an amazing book and an amazing movie that are different, 
but mm-hmm. both great in their own way. And this is an example yeah. of that because I was really blown away. I'm a huge crime fiction guy, but I had missed Ted Lewis somehow. Um, yeah, uh, um, you do miss that. And also, you also think that Frank, I've, I've sort of, I don't think of him as being upstanding, not having read the books, but watched the film quite a few times. You sort of think that Frank is involved in something. You know, he's not so, he's got some involvement on the dark side a little bit. So he's, he's not as menacing or as, uh, as steeped in, the, in crime as, as um, you know, as Kane's character is. But you, so, so yeah, the book, uh, maybe that's what it does. It outlines much more of a difference between them as a contrast. You know, I suppose it does. Yeah. And it's, um, yeah. yeah. And Frank is not at all played that way in the book. He's, he's a, it's poignant. It's a poignant storyline that I, that actually would have, but I can see why you don't do it in the movie because you'd have to have children actors. You'd have to, you know, they'd have to be good enough to plausibly play the relationship and the separation. It's a different type of a movie. And I, and I can see what Hodges did. The other thing that's impressive looking at the movie now is the image of the movie in popular culture now is that it's ultra-violent, a crazy pull-no-punches, ultra-violent fest of blood and exploding brains. Not until you get to the very end. I mean, it's the living definition of the slow burn. Oh, yeah. And also the, the, the fight scenes are close up and realistic. And you can sort of, you know, you can hear that and you sort of, oh, okay, it's sort of slap. Um, and you think, well, that's, yeah, that's good. And it's... Uh, and it's um, it's got that sort of Saving Private Ryan thing where it's face-to-face sort of violence and you think, oh, that's not very nice. But then, um, uh, yeah, you, <laughs> it's funny what you said about, yeah, originally I, I actually wrote down some of the reviews at the time um, and it says here, this is the London Evening News, which is no longer around, a revolting, bestial, horribly violent piece of cinema. You think, bloody hell, I mean, <laughs> what would they make of films now, that particular journalist? And then other, it said here, other critics lined up to take pot shots at the film's unremitting bleakness and brutality. Thought, blimey. I mean, it's not exactly dystopian, is it? I mean, for all of its bleakness. Um, and it says here, right, this is uh, George Melly, a jazz musician, and also um, writing in The Observer, about as pleasant as a bottle of neat gin swallowed before breakfast, um, which actually is quite good. So that's a <laughs> rave review then. That's that's actually a rave review, but I think it yeah it was a slow burn, wasn't it? And it was um it it became trendy, um and it's funny how many of sorry if I'm going off topic, but how many times do you uh, you get uh, people sort of want to talk to Kane about his best films? And I found this quite a few times. Uh, it's not even seen as in his top five or top ten, or not Kane himself, but other people. Mm. Think, well, how can that not be in his top five? It's it crazy. It has to be. It's probably. It him, and I'm sure you will talk about that later. It says a lot about Kane himself, but bloody hell, that was, as uh, Mark Kermode said, you know, this was just made for Michael Kane, you know, and he's got, he's never been as evil or as well cast or as edgy. Yeah. And it's too bad that he, um, he didn't get to play the character again. I was thinking even yeah. now would be an amazing film. Uh, of course, he dies at the end, so I guess you can't do it. You'd have to have a little magical realism. But had the character lived, it would have been... Well, I mean, I suppose if you'd have sort of done a sort of maybe a Game of Thrones type thing, you could have had those waves crashing over him. They could have had an elixir that would have just seeped into his... A bit like Jon Snow, could have seeped into him. And then, um, and then you know... But that, that film is so revered, it probably wouldn't have been as, as revered had there been a second one. No. It's so revered in the UK... That um, you know uh, the Slice Stallone version 
wasn't even released over here. Thank God. I haven't seen it. I'm going to I'm going to do everyone the favor of not watching that. I don't think there's any reason to go there. I can't. I mean, I get if You know what? The best that can be said about that without having seen the movie, but just presuming that it's awful, is that if Sly Stallone was such a big fan of either the book or the movie that he used his power to remake it and starred himself, great, as a vanity vehicle. I hope that's the case. I hope it was out of his genuine love for the film and the book that he wanted to do it. And then, and in that case, I'll give him a total pass. If it's just like a crass business thing that somebody was like, hey, let's remake that with Sly Stallone. Things happen in the story, you know, we, we make mistakes, we fall down, we get into trouble. It happens to everybody. It does. But it doesn't mean, you know, everything that happened yesterday has to happen every day. It doesn't. <laughs> you don't want to do it like me and spend your whole life looking backwards. Like, yeah. I'm not, I, will, I, will, I will never see that. There's no, there's no occasion you, to see that. If you do 30,000 of these podcasts, maybe it might. <laughs> it might come up. You might still. Shit, you know what? We haven't done the remake of Get Carter yet. You know what you realize doing this, Paul, is that the, there are some movies that's just not worth it. It's not worth your time to spend an hour talking about them, and it's not worth it to put all the time and effort into editing it to release it. And it's, you always no. think it's funny to do a bad movie, and then you're sitting there watching this movie, and you go, oh, my God, I can't believe I have to sit through this. Well, one of my favorite pastimes is actually um, doing an, imp uh, an impersonation that everyone knows, but in someone else's accent. So forgive me for butchering Sliced Alone. Because uh, yeah, all your listeners will know do a better one than me is uh, you're a big man, but you're out of shape. Me, I do this for a living. No, sorry, that's bad, isn't it? It doesn't quite work. Listen, I don't like it when some tough nut comes pushing his way in and out of my house in the middle of the night. Bloody well, tell me who sent you. You're a big man, but you're in bad shape. With me, it's a full time job. Now behave yourself. All right. <laughs> Good night, Mrs. Bramby. Such a great line. That's such an incredible... I mean, we, uh, as friends, my mates, we use this so much. <laughs> we use this line all the time about everything, you know. And also, I, I got the quote wrong. I've been saying, you know, um, you're a big man, you're out of shape, I do this for a living. It's not quite right. There's a, there's a, it's, it's actually, you're a big man, but you're out of shape. Me, I do it for a living. It's right. a bit like, slightly different. You're a big man, but you're in bad shape. With me, it's a full-time job. Now behave yourself. So we, I, I, you do it as a joke all the time now. So if you're having a bit of a wrestle with a mate, you just say, you go up close, you say, all right, you're a big man, but you're out of shape. I do this for a living. And, and, what, and the way also pop culture has played tricks on us, because I watched it as a kid and then hadn't watched it for a while, is that you sort of think what it does to Alf Roberts, who was the genial, uh, sorry, Alf Roberts is the character, is Brumby, but he played mm. um, Cliff Brumby, the actor um, plays Alf Roberts in Coronation Street, who was the most beloved character in in the, the uh, Britain's right. longest soap opera. I said you should have had the fish. Now, what did I say? <sighs> oh, don't go on about it. Well, I did say, didn't I? Look, it's Christmas. You don't come to a duel like this and starve, especially not at these prices. Well, it's for charity, you keep saying. Testing, testing, one, two, and you're not having any pudding either. Well, I can have a bit. Oh, Alf, you've just been complaining that you've eaten too much. I have not. It's this plumbing thing. It's come on, Bond. Oh, really? It's too tight. I'm taking it
kill yourself, eat yourself to death. See if I can. Thank you. It plays, you know, in the local shop. And for God's sake, you know, what Michael Caine does is he throws... He throws Alf Roberts over the top of a multi-story car park and kills him. All right, and and weirdly, Alf Roberts, uh, sorry, Cliff Bromby falls in a very lifeless way, but obviously um, the stuntman in him was used to just falling on his head rather than using his arms. But okay, so wait, happened. at that point, was he already on the soap? Yeah, he was. Okay, so... Was at times, he wasn't a regular, but he was in there, and oh. Coronation Street fans will kill me now for getting that wrong. But, no, but, yeah. like in, but in a way, isn't that kind of part of what the movie is about, which is saying everything you think you love and adore about British society is bullshit. And I mean, you can't have a, a, a you can't have a more delicate metaphor than Michael Caine physically throwing the guy off a car park right. and to his horrific death below. Like, isn't that part of what we're doing in the book and in the movie a little bit? Yeah, there was, it's a bit of a, it's another, you're right. It's another sim, symbolic scene, I suppose. Yeah, um, I think I think the lesson that we should all learn from that scene in the multi-story car park is build the walls um, higher because otherwise anyone can just throw anyone off the edge. I mean, it's so low. If I was if I was Cliff Brumby there, I would have said, "Hang on, I'm about to fall off the edge of the." Oh no, too late. You know, I mean, it just goes too early, too easily. I, I think I think the point of the scene, Paul, is that Cliff is trying to put on airs with this ridiculous concept for a for a restaurant in the sky, yeah. and. The repudiation of that is just picking him up by his lapels and his fancy suit with his two architects, his dandified architects in waiting, yes. and just throwing the guy's body off the top. I mean, that is the North, That's right? That's a funny scene, isn't it? That's a darkly funny it's scene. It's really funny. I mean, Actually, you asked about the British car system. There it is, the two architects. And you're right, sorry, and I'm, I missed it. Cliff Brumby's trying to be sort of keeping up appearances, mm -hmm. if you know that sitcom. Yeah. He's trying to be all sort of, um, yeah. oh, I like He's putting on like airs. I'm, I could be the mayor of this place soon, you know, and you're right. And he's the corrupt guy who is, uh, but that's the hospitality industry that eventually does kick in. <laughs> does, to does kick in. <laughs> that's in Gateshead. And there was, you know, the story about this, but that was, um, that was a protected building until uh, they demolished it 10 years ago. Wow. Less than. So they wanted to keep it, but uh, it had to go. Um, it was a bit of a monstrosity or as Prince Charles would call it, a carbuncle, a monstrous carbuncle. Okay. So, Speaking of the class system and the North and accents, I'm going to throw a complete wild card at you. My family and I, over the last several years, have been obsessed with the Great British Bake Off. Oh, flip. Okay. And many of the contestants and their accents are clearly from the North. Why is that? Is there, is there something, is it to do with the friendliness that you're talking about? Or is it a little bit more like... Is it kind of condescending in a way where it's like, oh, here are the charming northerners and their accents. Like, I don't hear a lot of East or South London accents in the contestants on the show. So when it gets to like casting British reality TV, how does the class system come into that, if at all? You're, you're right. Uh, there is a lot more of it. And that's Channel 4 probably being, being more inclusive, if I'm honest. And now if you've noticed, um, you know, now when there are, announcers on TV in the UK, there's way more regional accents. Mm -hmm. A newsreader's way more regional accents. So now um, uh, the BBC is up in Manchester now. Channel 4 has moved to Leeds. Uh, mm -hmm. So we just have to become more inclusive. So rather than having a load of idiot TV wanker Cockney people like myself accents, um, they've moved it out. And remember, um, you only have to go about eight, 70 or 80 miles and people's voices do sound a lot different, even 70 or 80 miles. So, all right, you go past Oxford, you go to the Midlands, 
1890. Do a good agricultural accent for me. That's my favorite. Well, you know, because if you go out west, like you go to Bristol and they're, they're talking slightly like, which is why it's so funny when people from, you know, that's why David Brent was funny because he's got that sort of rural sort of thing, that OR thing at the end. So it's funny. People laugh at it. Yeah. The bosses are panicking. They're going, oh, cut back, lose staff. You know, that's the way forward. That'll save us money, will it? Yeah. Who's to say that, you know, hiring staff won't save money in the long run? You know, does a, a struggling salesman start turning up on a bicycle? Well, he turns up in a newer car. Perception. Yeah. They've got to trust me. I'm taking these guys into battle. Yeah. And I'm doing my own stapling. Yeah. A sergeant major spends all his time training his men to be killers. He doesn't polish his own boots. He probably, he probably does polish his own boots. But, you know, it doesn't mean... Uh, it doesn't mean I have to do my own filing. And then you've got a, a comedy over here called This Country at the moment, which is sort of poor white folk from Swindon. People need to pay the price for the bad things they've done, or they'll just keep doing them. Bring back the old justice system, that's what I say. And we'll sort out a lot of other problems wrong with this country. Like some of our leading supermarkets putting horse meat in their pies. If that was in France, that would be fine. But we're not in France. We're in the UK, OK? And they've got that sort of funny, like, like that. You know, they talk, it's, it is quite, not when I say it, obviously, because I've done, I've, I've, again, I've murdered it. But if you go, um, if you go up to the Midlands, they're sort of a bit nasal. And then you go, and there's, there's better people who can do far better than me. Then you go um, up, to, uh, up to Manchester, all right, where, where the Gallagher brothers are from. And it's like, all right, yeah, all right, like that, you know, all right, yeah, it's Manchester. And then 30 miles from there is Liverpool. Then you've got like, hey, to do, don't, 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 Liverpool, that's scouts. Because a bit sort of, bit sort of Scandinavian, like, because I got that thing in the back of their throat. <laughs> that's only 30 miles from, all right, down our kids, you know, Manchester. And it's so different, those two accents. And then you go across the Pennines. To Leeds, which is, you know, uh, I know what I like and I like what I know, Yorkshire. Uh, and I, I, again, there's West Yorkshire, South, East. Right. And if I say to someone, is that West Yorkshire? I go, no, no, I'm not. I'm from South Yorkshire. Very different accents. And then you go up, further up the A1, past and into Northumberland, which is where, you know, you've got Sunderland, Middlesbrough, Newcastle up there. Those accents, and I'm not even going to try apart from Man, which is the Newcastle thing. Okay, but, so uh, within Newcastle, would you have strata of accents depending yeah. on class? Oh, no. No, you, you really just have, Everyone has a Newcastle accent. That's a really good question, isn't it? And this is, I don't even, I can't, no. You, yeah, because those two guys at the top of, uh, mm-hmm. those two guys, you know, the, the two architects, they're just posh Southern boys. And if you've got a, you're just called posh. You know, right. so people will know, people will know it but it's not a regional accent. It's just a posh accent. So a posh accent doesn't have a region. It just, it just is posh and it's just dialed down the regional variation. So you could be someone posh from Manchester who just pronounces his bath like bath, mm-hmm. but you're still posh. Right. So, so um, it's just, that there's no, uh, so yeah, someone will know because you've pronounced your words a little bit better and you haven't left things off. Like in Bristol, people uh, put an L on the end of their words, weirdly. So they'll say, uh, are you from the Ariel? Are you from the Ariel? Why would you do that? Why would you Am put I from the Ariel? What? Well, so I've just, again, I've not done a very good job of a Bristol accent. Turner, the prima donna of the Car Rosa Opera Company. Opera Company. Can it work? Why do you say Opera Company? Opera. Opera. What about it? Opera. 
That's the, Why you're, have you got to say that? You're talking bristle, aren't you? You're Hi. saying Omeral. What have you got to say then? Well, you, you can say whatever you like, but you, you people in bristle, you talk funny, you put an L on the end of well, your... Well, I didn't put L in there. You said Operal. Operal. You're saying it now, Operal. The prima donna of the Cara Rosa Opera Company. <laughs> How's that? You said prima donna. Prima donna. Is it Donald? Donald. There's no L on it, no L on the end of it. Ah, there is one you speak first of me. Your speech never changed. I got Uncle been to America 45 years now and he comes home and he still speaks Bristol. Um, and it's where people used to travel as well. People never used to travel that much. Um, mm. And if they didn't, the, uh, the less people travelled 150, 200 years ago, mm. um, the more those accents became entrenched. And if you go to other countries, you go to Ireland, you can pick up an accent that's 20 miles away that's totally different from... And I don't know whether it's the same in the States. Probably mm. not so much. That's anyway. funny. My my wife and I were traveling once in Scotland and we had we were there for a week or two weeks and we planned on doing what Americans would do, which is driving a vast distance to just be in the car four or five hours to go visit somewhere else. And I remember talking to someone at a hotel we were staying at. And we were telling them that our plan was to uh, take a day trip, you know, like two and a half hours, three hours away, spend the day there and drive back. And he's like, you cannot do that. It was, it, for him, that was the equivalent of like, you, you would never go that far. No. You would never get in a car and drive three hours. And if you did do that, you would certainly stay for several days, if not a week. <laughs> and yeah. he was just could not fathom that we would drive that far within a day. We, we, we went for a drive once when I was a kid. And that's obviously a long time ago. And we drove for about ooh, 45 minutes to an hour. And uh, my dad had to ask for directions. And it was somewhere out near Reading, and they had a different accent. They had properly had a different accent. I was thinking, Jesus, where are we? <laughs> rolling down the window. minutes away. <laughs> you know, rolling down the window. You know, excuse me, do you know where? Or no, I think you're a bit too far now, actually. You're a bit... <laughs> I thought, Jesus Christ, where are we? <laughs> but so, um, but I, love the fact, I, love, I love the fact that um, estuary English hasn't spread too far. And they don't all sound a bit like myself mm -hmm. because it's really lovely when you go east or west or south or particularly north away from the capital very quickly you will get you know proper variations and it's brilliant it's brilliant mm -hmm. to hear it and it's long may it survive okay so uh, another recent obsession of mine i would like you to give me you mentioned yorkshire uh how does your selection of your tea come into British society in this manner. So for example, I gave up coffee in January and I switched to tea and I've never looked back. It's been phenomenal. And part of the fun of it, as you know, I like to go down rabbit holes. I like to get heavily involved in the minutiae. As uh, someone recently said in a film we were doing, um, I like things where you have to do the work in order to get the reward, right? So I don't want to just go to the store and buy like Tetley or Lipton, you know, I want to find out what are the, what are the teas to get? So I had posted on Facebook once saying like, tea people, I'm into, I'm, I'm getting into tea. Uh, what's my brand? What am I drinking here? Because I had just picked up a box of berries, uh, which is an Irish tea. Oh no, berries. Yeah. Barry's so tea. I posted the picture oh, yeah. of the box of berries and I said, this is phenomenal. Mm -hmm. I love this. And prior to that, I drank PG tips. And when I tell you, this, this simple post sparked so much consternation amongst loyalists to various brands of teas, it yeah. was phenomenal. 
And um, some people were like, are you crazy? You cannot drink anything other than PG tips. Other people said, you've got to go Yorkshire gold. You've got to do yes. berries red, not berries green. Why is this yeah. such a thing? Well, um, I mean, listen, that's, that's a really lovely long question, but it was sort of wasted because I don't drink tea. I'm the only person with any Irish genes that doesn't drink tea on a nation that just drinks tea around the clock. Wow. How did that happen? I don't know, but I think it's because I'm slightly hyper, as you can probably tell mm. most of the time. Tea for so, me. But what I, do you drink? You don't drink coffee either. If I have a if I have a quarter of a latte, I turn into a rabid beast for about 26 hours. So you know, I'm out. Oh, so I, you're the wrong person. Asked. I save this question for you, and you don't even know anything about it. No, no, I do, I do. So you can talk about it though, even though you don't well, consume I, it. I, I'm, yeah, I can talk about the fact that my wife, if or if we serve someone Earl Grey, it'd be like you've just my my folks. You know, my mum and dad. If they had Earl Grey, it would be like. Nothing else would they ever get offended by, but serving them the wrong tea. So yeah, Barry's tea is the number one for for your sort of working person, or your uh, your Yorkshire tea is as well. But then a lot of people now, I mean, that tea is like a bloody. It's like you almost have a, a sommelier now with tea, don't you? Your your builders and your and you know people want breakfast as well. So builders tea. So whenever we have someone, you know, if you if you have a tradesman, a window cleaner, or a, or someone you're getting on well is who's Who's you know someone who's, who's taking your bins out? Do you want a cup of tea? You would serve them a PG tips because then it's easy. You just know that's your bog standard. That's your thirteen hundred cc Ford Cortina Mark II that Kane is driving in the car. We used to have exactly that model. Uh, that's your sort of working man. So you're so you're you're classless. Just serve them anything. Everyone's going to be fine with that. Is your PG tips? But if you want to impress people, you do maybe a bit of Barry's or a bit of English breakfast or a bit of Earl Grey. But God knows, don't ask me to get into any more chamomiles or flipping everything else. Sorry. I love it. It's brilliant. I think um, our colleague Kula told me once, oh, no, you have to drink Yorkshire Gold. It's a proper builder's tea, which as an American, oh, yeah. I said, what does that mean? Oh. I assume that means someone who has to go out and perform and work all day needs a vigorous, hearty cup of tea. <laughs> Served in a sort of slightly chipped mug with the, the um, yeah, I'll have a thin glass. No, in a thin, thin cup. In a thin glass. In a thin yeah. gloss, the way Kane nails that. Some, there are okay, some let's not, I, don't, I, I diverted you from there. I, I just wanted to, I wanted no. to go down that rabbit hole with there, you. Uh, um, I want to talk about the other quotes. We were talking about, you're a big man. What are the other ones in that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, stroll on. I never hear that. Never hear that expression anymore. Stroll on. It's just not. It's just not insulting enough. What, in what 19- scene does he say that in? Oh, God, I don't know. He's just telling it's, someone uh, to keep, keep going and stop bothering him, basically? I think it's the guys who come in... Uh, Come into him, yeah. Things, oh, it's the uh, guys that come George into the room when he's uh, shagging the landlady. Yeah, it's George Sewell and his mate. Yeah, when they come in, and and uh, George Sewell, by the way, um, you'll know this being a bit of an anglophile. What a lived-in face he has. Mm. So, so the character name, and oh god, it's just um, what is the character George Sewell plays? He's got this. Uh, he's got his lived-in face. He he then went on uh, to be a main character in that amazing TV series, Space Nineteen Ninety Nine. Oh yes, that. love that. Gary Anderson, if not, yes. and nothing else. And then, and then he also did a load of cop shows. He was always uh, either a sort of bit of a villain, but then he started to play cops a lot more because he's a bit of an honest but sort of grim. There's a certain thing in um, in British acting where, and I, and uh, and Alan has described this way as well. It seems appropriate for a certain type of actor to be described as pockmarked, yeah. and oh, yeah. George George Sewell is described as pockmarked as is Alan Anthony. Yeah, yeah, and, and Alan, uh, Alan Armstrong. Armstrong's a good northeast name. Uh, George Sewell's an East Londoner. Yeah, Sewell is. Yeah, now Armstrong's uh, from the region, obviously. Yeah. That, and that's something you mentioned earlier: is 
isn't it great? Because I was expecting some really dodgy Geordie, because a Geordie is from Newcastle. Right. Uh, I was expecting some really dodgy Geordie accents. You know, when I'm um, watching it again about 10, 15 years ago, you don't get that. You don't get that at all. These people aren't putting it on. They're real. And that's, again, so good because um, even now you'll get people that, and, you know, actors are so good, especially um, British actors now going out, going over to the U.S., doing American accents. Sometimes you don't even know they're British. Yeah. You don't even know what nationality they are. So um, that's good. In that film, they've all got the actors, uh, the accents. And Alan Armstrong, of course, uh, Our Friends in the North, he went on to, which was a big, big TV series. And he, you know, uh, and that was another flagship Newcastle TV show. Mm-hmm. And that's good for him. I remember in America when The Wire was really big, uh, we were all shocked that Idris Elba was British. Yes. No one knew yeah. because it was a little bit, you know, it wasn't quite the oversaturation of knowing everything about everyone that's in a show like that at that time. And I remember, I think I actually remember going to a Q&A at the Museum of Television and Radio on which he was either a panelist or, or did a video. And I, I remember the, there was a shock that went through this 200-person audience. <laughs> Is he joking? Is, he, is, it, is, he, is he putting that on? Is this a bit? And they're like, is he, he's English? He's British. Yeah. He's British. No one knew because he was yeah. just so brilliantly deep um, into his role in The Wire. Whereas Dominic West, on the other hand, dot, dot, dot. Exactly. Sort of, it gets better through the series, but at the beginning, it's not like... A little spotty in the beginning. It's when, it's when, it's when British actors have to use the corner of their mouths to, to, to get in trouble. Them. Yeah. And Bob Hoskins was sort of a... You know, uh, had he been around now, his American accents would have been a lot better because it had been. Coached. What year was the Long Good Friday? Because that was one we considered doing. I wonder. How- yeah, about seventy-seven. Oh, okay, so God, it's amazing how influential this movie was then. Seventy-nine, but it didn't come out until I think 80, 1980. 1980, and uh, yeah, well, God, it's crazy. That's an amazing movie, man. But you know what? I think Get Carter is more of a – The Long Good Friday is so operatic and insane and brilliant. Mm. It's Crash Bang Wallet. That's a different thing. But yeah. this is so – it's unadorned. It's, yeah, this is evocative and timely. And yeah, this has got a, a certain atmosphere to it. There's, it's reeking. It does. It's reeking of atmosphere. So It is reeking of atmosphere. And it's not just reeking of atmosphere in the way that – we're not looking back on the atmosphere and it's sort of so bad. It's good. It's legit atmosphere and it's legit yeah. authenticity. And, 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 and Jason, what gives it that atmosphere? What gives it the atmosphere along with everything else? It is the, God, it's that theme tune from the very beginning. If you hear it now, I think of smoke. I think of billiard tables. You think of the sound that two balls make when they're hitting a, a table. You think of people glancing up and sort of putting their fag out and maybe having a little scotch at the bar. It's got that 
It's, it's got that jazz sound to it. But my God, it's got, it's just, it is, it reeks as well of it, doesn't it? It's sort of like the carpet is sticky when you walk in. The light is low, you know. What's interesting to me about that song, it's got tabla drums behind it. So it has this kind of, this this jazz kind of soul funk theme. Oh. But then it's got these tabla drums, which I think is also, to me, I think of like, okay, England is now becoming more of a multicultural society yeah. as we get into the 70s and beyond. And maybe... Yeah. Maybe consciously or unconsciously, that's part of kind of because I think that this movie is also about the change that's coming, the change that has occurred in the world. You know, how we yeah. often say that, you know, the 60s didn't just end in the 60s, like in 1971, it's still the 60s. But if you were to just have a snapshot of London, that wouldn't be real. Whereas, right. You know, uh, Jar Wobble, who uh, was in a band with uh, with John Lydon, mm-hmm. uh, Jar Wobble, he did a cover of it. I think he only did it live. I'm not sure. He said the whole mystery of creation is contained within it. Wow. And so, and it was covered by, um, I mean, I got this, uh, a mate of mine reminded me, he said, well, you've got it at home. The cover of, um, the Human League covered it. Yeah, on Dare. So they, uh, uh, you know, it's a very minimalist version. It's a very Spartan. It hasn't got those brilliant drums as you described. Are they from? Are they from that region? Yeah. See, that's the other thing. Is without getting too excited, this this goes into my whole British social history bent. I did a, mm-hmm. I did a history degree, so I've always want I always want to bend the conversation towards it. But Sheffield has a sound. A human league from Sheffield, just down the A1 a bit. Uh, forgive my geography, listeners, but it is further. It's, it's in Yorkshire. Brilliant um, and, band. Yeah, and so who are from the who are from there? So the Heaven Seventeen obviously split from there. Cabaret Voltaire, uh, ABC, lots of other bands, Arctic mm. Monkeys. But there's a certain industrial sound that the Human League had because of the steel industry there. Mm-hmm. And there's an industrial look to get Carter, the bridges, and you know the coal mining industry and the steel everywhere. So there is there is a you know smoke. There is a sort of uh, working man in, industry. So I, I think. You know, to be fair to Human League, they, they would have figured that one out. And that was mm-hmm. in 1980 as well when that came out. Um, and I think also um, Stereolab, mm. uh, they've covered it. I've, I haven't heard. I think there's a much more jazzy version, sort of French. 
this sort of version of Kraftwerk, um, if you like, but not with a few more bells added on. So but, people yeah, hold the film close and and respect yeah. it and honor it and and understand that it represents more than just this launching of Brit noir crime fiction and films, but that it's it's that embrace of a life that people are probably only one or two generations removed from. Yeah, but uh, that but I, but I think uh, that's right. I mean, it's only a, a, the Industrial Revolution was. Uh, was really sort of 1800s, just early 1800s, and it just kept going and going and going all the way through Victorian, all the way through the 19th century. It was a powerhouse. And so these cities, you know, those terraced houses there, but a lot of those terraced houses are still around in Birmingham, parts of Manchester, London, definitely. The back-to-backs, as they're called in certain places. I mean, pretty grim places. You can tell where, mm-hmm. um, I mean, the, the betting shop where, um, where uh, the where murder... He takes, yeah. Yeah, so that's in a yard at the back. That was big, as big as people's gardens were. There was no mm-hmm. garden. There was that yard. Then there's the alleyway. Then there's another yard and another house. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I think, um, yeah, that was again. The, the, but the music brings that out. Whenever we think about the film, whenever I think about the film, I think about that track. I think yeah. about the, because it really is. It's enmeshed in it. Mm-hmm. it it's uh, it's smokiness, doesn't it? All right. What else uh, do we need to discuss on Get Carter? Britt Eklund. <sighs> Wow. So that was she was that was her lucky break. She was really down her luck, wasn't she? So um, she just picked up this job. She didn't really want to take her top off, and I think she wouldn't have been in a Wicker Man if it wasn't for uh, this film. Talk about and a movie we should do on the podcast. Yeah, I think I was just thinking that. My brother reminded me. He said, "Are you going to do this? You're going to talk about the Brit Eklund's uh, f- uh, phone sex scene?" I said, "Probably. You're right. Probably have to cover that." The Brit Eklund phone sex scene is still pretty raunchy and erotic for a film of today's time. It really is. I can't even imagine it coming out in 1971 in the UK. Yeah. That seems... If they, yeah, if they had phones in Game of Thrones, that would have, um, that would have been one of the raunchiest scenes. So she was in, let's see. Well, she goes back to the 60s, but those are all just little... She needed that, she needed that film. Uh, and I think uh, that led to her... Yeah. Let's well, she, she married Sellers in 64. Oh, apologies. She's already over by then, I believe. Yeah, they divorced in 68. And then she had a son two years after this movie with Lou Adler. You know who that is? American record producer and Los Angeles Lakers courtside omnipresence. So she was uh, moving up in the world. She's quite good. The women actually uniformly in the film are pretty good and actually given more... Yeah. depth and character than you would expect in a gangster film of this type. They're still not, let's face it, they're still not really well drawn, are they? They're still, I mean, they're, they're pretty badly treated on, uh, on the whole in the film. I like to, unless I've missed something, I sort of think, blimey, you know, it's pretty tough the way they are treated. But, um, but yeah, of its time. Well, they're allowed complexity, though. I mean, she's allowed the complexity to be in this relationship that with Michael Caine's character is clearly founded on something real. Relationships with women as well. You know, Caine supposedly based this character on a real gangster in Elephant and Castle, who he's mentioned came up to him in a discotheque, as he called it. Yeah. Uh, and said, uh, you know, I saw the film. Yeah. What did you think of it? Well, uh, for a start, um, I'm not married. If it is based on me, I said, well, yeah, it was based on you. So, well, we were all married. He said, why? We just were. It just gave us respectability. So you were saying earlier about the class system, you know, this, this gives you respectability mm-hmm. as well. The marriage thing, 
marrying quite well, you know, mm-hmm. sort of, you know, as, as they used to say of its time, Dolly Bird. But, you know, they had to have their, mm-hmm. their sort of... Uh, um, their Melania yeah, Trump. Yeah, it, mo- <laughs> it moves them up in society. <laughs> yeah, God, prescient. Yeah, so, so I think um, the gangster said, yeah, I thought it was crap. Yeah, and they, they use that word as well. I think um, someone describes Newcastle as a crap house, another word that you don't really... And also, there's another phrase that... that, that um, he says, yeah, you wouldn't win. He's, tracing, he's chasing after Hendry. He says, you wouldn't win an egg and spoon race. Do you know what an egg and spoon race is? No, I don't. All right. An, <laughs> an egg and spoon race is what you have in kids' schools. Um, one little spoon in front of you, you put an egg on it, and you've got to run as fast as possible, <laughs> holding out the spoon with the egg on and not dropping the egg. So, um, so he's belittling, though he's about to murder him, he's belittling him. Uh, you know, and he, when he murders him as well, he's just got a smile on his face. So... That's why I love the malevolence, and I wish he'd done more. You know, he does, he does toy with being evil in, in films, but I wish he'd done a few more like this because he just, it was made for him, but he could have done. That's you know, all down to Ted Lewis. That's all in the book. Yeah. That's the, yeah, that's okay. the gene. Like, Ted Lewis was such a, I'm, I'm going down the Ted Lewis rabbit hole, and there's a, there's a book that's out in the UK right now that's all about him, but you can't get it here in the States yet until September. But I think there's going to be a little bit of a resurgence of interest in Ted Lewis as a writer because one of the things that's so saturated throughout the books, basically all of the characters sort of references are used through musical references to give it a sense of place and time. And all of the humor that's in the book and all of the insults to your point are also frequently used to indicate a a place and a class. And all the characters in the book kind of insult each other in various ways that tell us about who they're supposed to be. Absolutely. And, and the, the ability of understatement, you know, the two, the two architects talking to each other, you know, the understatement they use, you know, when they hear uh, Brumby's body hit the car, they don't quite know who it is. And that's a, that's a funny line, some funny lines in there. It's very rude to disappear like that. Where can he possibly be? I have an awful feeling we're not going to get our fees on this job. Not interesting for me, but interesting maybe for a US listener is, yeah, how, what is that all about, that stupid class system? And I don't, because I'm too seeped in it, you don't realise. Mm. But yeah, I suppose it's the insults. They would be different insults because of, because of where they're from, what school they went to, you know. Mm. And that's, um, I lived in Australia for a while. In Australia, people don't ask you, what do you do? The second question. Yeah. Whereas over here, People still say, so what do you do? Yeah. And what do you do? And then the next question, where did you go to school? Would be, <laughs> so um, I always try to avoid those. It's <laughs> a way you develop a, a sense of humor because if you don't, uh, right. people will ask you those questions. But yeah, um, there is, along, with, along with actually how much people smoke. Um, mm. I mean, my God, I, mean, I know, but how many fags were there? Sorry, I'm using the word fags and I suddenly realized cigarettes. Cigarettes, we, yes. Yeah, but um, yeah, we call them fags. We're a multinational much, podcast. People know that you mean cigarettes. Don't worry. How much, you know, uh, you know, health and safety it's would crazy. have been there standing on the side of there saying, no, you mustn't smoke in bed. It's very bad. Yeah. You can cause a fire. If you cause it, and then you have a public information film with a, a man with a pencil moustache saying, smoking in bed is really bad for you. You must <laughs> never do it because it causes fires. Fires can lead to hell streets burning down. But did you know what lung cancer looks like? This was a 30 day man. The lung's got a sort of dirty grey colour because of the tar and soot in the cigarette smoke. The white bits of the tumour. 
the cancer. He was 16 when he had his first cigarette. Same age as me. He thought it made him look grown up. I don't think there's anything very grown up about lung cancer. And of course, you know, it's only, uh, when that film was made, it's only 25 years since the end of the Second World War. You know, and there are still, uh, Newcastle was bombed, but, you know, not on the, um, I don't have the stats, but, you know, it had a shipyard and they would definitely have been after that, Harland and Wolf mm -hmm. and everyone else. So, um, but, you know, there's a, there's a memory there of the war. So they would have had bombs dropping. Michael Caine now is, I think, 87, 86. Yeah, he is. Yeah, he is. Yeah. When I was doing some research, I was thinking, oh, man, it's that's going to be that's going to be a sad, a sad and terrible day. I hope it doesn't come oh, anytime soon. Oh, I hope oh. he stays very safe and secure. Yeah, sure. uh, I just saw an interview that he did uh, from Interview Magazine that I think had taken place during the pandemic. And when I saw that, I thought, oh, he better stay inside, man. Oh, he better please. not be taking I mean, any risks. Along with him, and also because I, I don't want to have to do the impression too often. It's, it's uh, Sean's uh, not too well I'm hearing at the moment. I'm, please get well if you're listening, uh, Sean. And uh, you and Michael, I want to see you on the golf course playing with each other very soon. Sorry about that. But I had to, because um, they're good mates anyway. And, right, and I, I was watching bits of The Man Who Would Be King the other day. And it just, yes. and I, yeah, you're right. I mean, my God, that would be a dark day. But, you know, listen, a life well lived. The guy made every movie you could make and about 200 yeah. more. So, yeah, and, and uh, though Roger Moore wasn't as good, a, I can't do a, a voice. All I can do is a raised eyebrow on Roger Moore you sort of feel as though still there's a little piece of uh, our pop culture being removed every time someone like that. Yeah, it's a little bit of your childhood broken off and falling into the sea. But he was in uh, Wild Geese. Move! That's Roger Moore, isn't it? <laughs> I think he is. Wild Geese keeps coming up. I think it came up Sorry. in the... Oh, I think it must have come up when we were doing uh, the James Bond movie podcast, which you took great umbrage to, apparently. As a Sorry, only because... Bond I purist, I guess. I'm a little bit, only because I just felt a You Brit couldn't accept it. See, I actually, I think this comes to the English system. I don't, think, I don't think Brits have ever been able to accept an Australian as James Bond. That's at the root of your dislike for George Lazenby. Well, I mean, he's an ice cream, an ice cream model. I mean, no respect. No, sorry, much respect well, because it's my favorite Bond film. Listen, it was secretly my favorite Bond film for years, but with my mates, you could never not have a Connery film as your favorite. Right, of course, bad form. Generations underneath now are now saying, "Well, no, uh, Roger Moore is our favourite. Uh, is our favourite Bond." So nobody says that, but uh, no, they do. They do because we all want to wear. We all want to wear a sort of um, uh, a, an, a khaki sort of all-in-one suit or right. uh, or a purple ski suit. We all want to wear those because we because <laughs> it looks quite good. But no, um, uh, Lazenby was. He had the best script. He had the best film. But he no. wasn't the best actor. No, he had not at the time, but he would have been. I don't want to go down this rabbit hole with no, you. No, but he, but he no, would have been I, good. Michael no, Caine, I, though, Michael Caine is one of those guys who is both a superstar, a movie star, and an actor of the highest quality. And he's a type of he has the type of IMDB page that on the podcast we like to give our highest praise for what we call a working actor which is not always somebody necessarily that you know right off the bat, but like an Alan Armstrong is, a, is the definition of a brilliant working actor who's not a star per se, but he's no. someone who's probably going to have 148 film credits by the time his all is done. And Michael Caine must have over 200. I can't even imagine what they must be. Well, um, you know, and, and also he, uh, he says, you know, I never thought I'd be, I didn't want to be rich and famous because I knew I never would. Mm -hmm. I knew I never would be. So, 
So that's probably why, you know, he came from a background, you know, his mum mm. was a cleaner, his dad was a porter. I think he's kept that. And he says, you know, he always tips cleaners $20, you know. Um, and, yeah, because he was uh, Maurice Micklewhite. I love that his name is Maurice. Yeah, that would yeah. be great. I wish he had changed it back. No, yeah. And he, well, it was Maurice White, wasn't it? And then he realised uh, the... Um, they realised there was already... He wanted to change his name, sorry, to Michael White. Yes. And the... Um, there already was one, I think. Person, the equity person phoned up and said, you can't be M- Michael White. There's already a Michael White. And he looked out the window and saw the film poster, didn't he, for Kane Mutiny. Yeah. And Humphrey Bogart was his favourite actor. So he's, I'm Michael Kane. You know, and he's so, got uh, 171 film credits, which is astounding. And, and he hasn't made that many bad films. He de- he self-deprecates. Well, I know, but he self-deprecates. Um, have you seen The Hand? <laughs> and, and, no, but he gets a lot of stick for Jaws Have you seen too. Jaws 3? But he's only in Jaws. Oh, I know. I haven't seen Jaws. No, I haven't. But he's only in Jaws two for ten minutes. Or Jaws two. What does he say famously? They said, "Have you seen Jaws two? No, but I see the swimming pool it bought every day." Yes, <laughs> but I think he's so self-deprecating that people don't think of him as a star. They don't revere him because he doesn't respond to being revered. He wants to be a normal individual. Oh well, I think he's revered. He's absolutely revered. Yeah, he is revered. No, but he doesn't want to be. So, you know, he he um. He's just cool. What he is is cool. He has, he has, he didn't lose. He retained that thing from where he's from that I think, speaking of the class system, he's, he's not the type of British film star who forgot where he came from. He was actually fortunate enough, smart enough, lucky enough to be able to make that, to retain that as, as part of who he always was on screen. And I think in doing so, it keeps him grounded in something he never would he never would put on airs in that way. He would never try to be something he's not, even though his profession is to be something he's not. That is a that is a Cockney thing, which is it's a thing from all cities, I think. If you're a if you're a working class person from the city, mm-hmm. you will always have this um, you know, charm. He's got that um self-effacing charm so that so that then right. disarms people around him. It's and true. that also he says when he goes out for for dinner with people, he just has a good laugh about the stories, about all of his acting stories. And I think that's what, you know, that's what gave him his, uh, you know, people like him from the beginning. And also, he does always say that whenever I'm in a difficult situation, he says, I always think about no, nothing was more difficult than being charged on by a load of mad North Koreans or Chinese soldiers mm-hmm. in the Korean War, where he fought hand to hand. With a bayonet. You know, this guy is, and he said he smelt the garlic on their breath when Mm. he was trying to evade capture when they were on a night patrol. I mean, for God's sake, you wouldn't, yeah, you're not really, uh, he says he's never phased by anything. And he said um, sometimes he was looking forward to a good bollocking by a director. He said, even, uh, he said, what did he say? John Huston said to him, uh, and I'm not going to do him because my John Huston would end up being Sean Connery, which is no bad thing. I could uh, give an excuse. I could do. You can't do an, you can't do an American accent. That's the problem. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. But John Huston said, um, uh, when he was doing uh, Man Who Would Be King, he said, uh, he was doing some lines. He said, well, how come you're not telling me anything? He said, well, and I, there, was, there was only one comment. He just said, speed up. He said, uh, he said speak quicker. He said, mm-hmm. um, honest people talk fast. I was like, I've ruined that one for you. Yeah, Sorry good anecdote, that. Paul. Um, I'll save you with this tidbit. Michael Caine is one of only two actors nominated for an Academy Award for acting in every decade from the 60s to the 2000s. Can you name the other actor? 
Every decade from 1960 to the 2000s, Michael Caine has been nominated for an Academy Award for acting. There's only one other actor that's true for. Who is it? Uh, would that be to the 2000s? To the 2000s. Would that, be, that wouldn't be Nicholson, would it? Yes, it would be, Jack. Oh, Good hey. one. You looked that up. I did not. It's just like, uh, listeners, for the record, no, I didn't. Okay. Um, and who is the only other actor nominated for acting Academy Awards in five different decades? Oh, I don't know. No, I'm, I'm quit while I'm ahead. Okay, I'll give you a hint. Is it safe? My dear boy, have you ever considered acting? Olivier. Yes. Olivier was nominated for an Academy Acting Award in five different decades, beginning in 1939 and ending wow. in 1978. Wow. And he said, he said um, Kane said uh, Olivier was having real problems, not just because he was on Valium during Sleuth, but he said he had real problems uh, with his acting. And in the end, he was doing brilliantly in the theatre at the time. And he was on Valium. I think he'd just been dropped by the National. But he said, um, I'm having trouble acting with my own face, he said. Um, <laughs> so he had to sort of work out how to do that according to, um, that's probably that's like a high level acting problem that you get if you're Laurence Olivier you know yeah, you fall into traps like that first world first world acting problem first world acting problem yes okay Paul what else would you like to hit on Get Carter oh I was going to talk about the cars but that's a class system thing again is that you know he has a Mark II you've got the gorgeous red jag of Osborne you know is the one where he knocks the door off it but I mm -hmm. think I just think it's a great selection of cars. And you were talking about last the last podcast, you know, there's the cars in there as well. And there's a there's actually the Sunbeam Alpine gets featured in the Bond film, gets featured in Doctor No as well. But I, you know what? I actually think I want a sports car. That's the that's the sports car that the girl picks him up in after the yeah, uh, parking lot. Is that supposed to be a yeah. a fancy sports car, like an Alfa Romeo yeah. or something? Is that like that's the British idea of a sports car? <laughs> British sports car. Sunbeam. It's not quite the most masculine title for a sports car. Sunbeam Alpine, when you're a kid looking at those, you sort of like, it's four, as we I say. I thought that was now. like a, a, a toaster. That's like a brand of toasters in America. I didn't know they made cars. It's a sort of, what's the word? It's uh, it's working man's. That's what a we working, sort of like. okay, working man's sports car. If a toaster is a sort of, if a toaster could be a car and it's a Sunbeam <laughs> Alpine, well, then I'm happy with that. That's you know, a great, hilarious like, montage that Hodges does is the driving stick shifting of the sports car intercut with the sex scene between the two of them. Yeah, uh, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. It's so that's that's like maybe the one tip over into a little bit of cheese that I appreciate. In oh, it's, there is a little bit of cheddar grated on top of that as well. <laughs> I was going to say it's Tarantino's favorite film. Favorite oh, is it British really? Film. Tarantino's favorite British film. I can see that. I can see that. But, it's yeah, got and, a lot uh, of style. It has effortless style. It's amazing it to me that Mike Hodges ended up making Flash Gordon a mere nine years later. I don't know how that's even humanly possible that that occurred, but it probably has to do with a lot of cocaine. Yeah. And I, uh, yeah. Or a need for money. I don't know. Well, and I, I, you were, we were talking about, I wonder what, what has this film influenced? And um, because Mark Kermode, I know I've mentioned him once. He is Every brilliant. crime film that came after it. Well, yeah, to a certain extent, but I was also, Mark Kermode said it's the, um, it's the best British gangster, best post-war British gangster film ever made. Definitely. I think, yeah, definitely. What has it influenced? I, and I was just discussing with a few mates. I would say the Sweeney. And um, the Sweeney was sort of um, archetypal, mid to late 70s, early 80s cop, but mm -hmm. nasty cop, um, but long running TV drama on Thames, on ITV. And I think maybe that was the, was the one because I, I'm actually, there's not a lot that I would say 
that get Carter, if it was personified, whether it would tip his hat to anything else, really, because maybe Long Good Friday, possibly the only thing, as you said earlier. I think it's too good to have anything um, revere it, and maybe on TV. And then, but the thing is, before it, you had things like, in TV terms, you had things like The Prisoner, which were all a bit silly. And not, not silly, mm-hmm. but they had a heart. Yeah. And they had, and that, but this was just gritty. No one else came along with this many fag butts and this mm-hmm. much smoke and this much sticky carpet, did they? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In a, in a, in a, you know, in a, in a thin glass. <laughs> no, it's singular. It like all, like all great things. Ultimately, it 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 has antecedents and it has descendants, but it stands alone. And and whether Guy Ritchie, you know, takes takes the lionization of East End gangsters into a more comical realm, you know, clearly he owes a massive debt to this film and these Ted Lewis books. But again, I keep going back to the books, like the film, yes. But let's not forget, it was Ted Lewis mm. who put this on paper as you see it on screen with greater depth, greater characterization, and and even more humor, uh, even more of this thing we've come to then experience in so many other places, which is that that yeah. kind of appreciation of the the East End gangster, the Cockney gangster, right? And it's that's it, it, it. Ted Lewis is the fountain from which I think all of those other things that that want to explore, particularly in the UK, that type of crime life, owe the massivest debt to because he is the yeah. original. Well, I think by the time this podcast goes out, if it actually makes it, because you know you might just think Jesus is not worth it; it's a load of old shite. But um, you, you, um, you, 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 you should really go and option all of Ted uh, Ted Lewis's work because someone else will. Um, yeah, on I, know. I think you're going well, to. I want to make a documentary about Ted Lewis. I want to. I want to. Ba- I want to get in touch with uh, the author of his auto the biography that's coming out because his life is crazy too. He died of alcohol abuse at 41. And he only wrote books for about 10 years. And yeah. I've only, I've read, uh, I read this one, which in book form is called Jack's Return Home. Mm. And I read what's supposed to be kind of his masterwork, which is GBH. final book, GBH, yeah. which I'd never read before. And which has a complicated narrative device where it switches back and forth between now and then, but packs the same type of walloping punch that that this movie and this book does at the end in an unexpected way. The same lyrical, unsentimental, yet appreciative examination of the gangster life, the crime life, but also had such a such a great way of kind of pre-Tony Soprano showing us the cost of this life amongst mm-hmm. your relationships. And I think that's something that's kind of hinted at in these books too. And it's the, the evocative nature of what you said as kitchen sink dramas. Mm-hmm. You know, they sort of, there's, you know, you were talking about light switches and stuff. Like that, and we really are boring a pants off everyone apart from ourselves, I think, by now. Talking about Bakelite light switches. If you don't but like think, Bakelite light switches, this is the wrong podcast for you. Switch your Bakelite light switch off. But no, um, <laughs> mine's already off in my that head. That resounding thunk. That's the thing. Yeah, the thunk. Absolute thunk. Yeah, like, you know, absolutely. the higher up the ladder you go, your light switches make a lot less noise. And also, what else was made of Bakelite? Your tabletop and also your, your radio as well. Your radio, your phone. So the, the, the other thing I was going to say is, if they were to make that film again in the right way, you bet your whatever dollar or bet your pound that 
what would Michael Caine look like when he walk, when he strides out onto the street? He strides out onto the street holding that shotgun. Sorry, yeah. terrible. Again, I sound like I've taken helium, but that was meant to be Michael Caine. But how would, the, how would he have looked? Mm-hmm. He would have looked. He's sort of, I like that word louche, which I always think of um, thingy in Big Lebowski is sort mm-hmm. of louche looking. Yeah. He's sort of a bit lived in, but big and a bit handy. Mm-hmm. If he walked out there, that guy would have been in the gym with his, with his uh, instructor for the previous right. six months. It comes out of it looking like a real person, yeah, you know, a big, a big bloke, but and he does it for a living. You know, yeah. he's sort of uh, not someone who's in the gym, sort of like just checking out his pecs and exactly. making sure he's on egg exactly. whites. And chicken. Yeah, that's one thing we've lost in movies is is yeah. realism of that sort. You know, and Tony Soprano again. Yeah. Maybe yeah. 20 years on, Tony Soprano wouldn't have looked like that. Tony Soprano would have looked a little bit more, you know, yeah. a bit more ripped. Yeah, which is you know something else. Okay, well. Paul, that was fantastic. You acquitted yourself phenomenally well. I think you're going to have to come back. We're going to have to do another film. What should we do when you come back on the pod? Let's do, uh, well, let's do something a bit different. But listen, let's see how many, um, how, how many, many downloads you get. Goes. How many people just hate this? Uh, <laughs> Hopefully yeah. it'll go over well in the North. I mean, you've taken some, you've, you've made some, some sweeping cultural claims about the North. And I think I don't know. Are they going to welcome that from such a southerner like yourself? I don't know. Probably not. So sorry. I'm only trying to. Um, but you but know. no, you're 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 big upping it, as they say. You're, yeah, you have yeah. appreciation for it. You're. Um, yeah. maybe, is it fashionable for the South to sort of um, look up to the North and and praise oh, it, or is it more? No, I, I don't class myself. I'm a Londoner first, and I'm British second or English second. I'm certainly a Londoner. I'm not really British Irish parents, but I sort of think. Yeah, I, I have more in common with someone from the north than I probably would from right. Tunbridge Wells or from the, uh, you know, the, the shires. So no, I always think there's a sort of earthiness. Which, Kinship. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. But they'll just be say, and, you know, there's a, it's probably to do with football and things like that as well, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. boring stuff like that. But let's not go into that. But I'd love to do another, another one. Yeah, if, you, if I haven't bored everyone. Okay. Well, uh, it was fantastic to have you on. And thank you so much for sharing such great insight about this film and about the UK and the class structure and all the things that we know to depend on Hino for. <laughs> thank you. Thanks. And Jason. I hope that the pandemic uh, alleviates so that we can see each other in person at one yeah. of our glamorous television global conference stops in the near future. Yeah, we can, we can clink tall glasses full of tea together, can't we? Well, I'll have tea uh, in a thin glass. Uh, you, know, you know that the next time we do have a meal together, one of us is going to... You're going to have to snap your fingers at the waiter in a thin glass. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's I know we will. We will. No, it's a real, honestly, a privilege to be asked to go on this. because uh, well, It was great. You did fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate yeah. it. Thank you, Jason. All right, buddy. Stay safe. Yes. Cheers. Bye. 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 <laughs> so, you're doing all right then, Eric. You're making good. I'm making all the way. Good prospects for advancement, is there? Huh? A pension? Do you know, I had almost forgotten what your eyes look like. They're still the same. Piss holes in the snow. Still got a sense of humour. Yeah. Yes, I retain that, Eric.